We started the church about seven and a half years ago. Started with uh, just doing festivals and we started connecting with people, building relationships. And out of that, God has built a church that is currently about 110 people. We meet uh, in, a, in a very small space. Uh, we do two services every Sunday and the Lord has used this ministry to bring people to himself. Our church plant is the third church plant in the last uh, 10 years. Before that, we hadn't seen a church plant in about 35 years. The soil is difficult among the Greeks, but Kipseli somehow, God has worked in the hearts of Kipseli so that uh, we've uh, seen that they are very soft and very responsive. And, and that leads us to the project that we're helping with, which is to provide some heating, cooling units, chairs, furniture, sound equipment for a new facility that you will be moving into. Um, can you first tell us about the old facility? Well, the space that we, we currently meet can uh, meet at the most about 50 people. And that's why we currently have two services on Sunday morning to be able to accommodate the people that we have and they're maxed. And I see a new couple coming into the door. They look around to find a seat to sit down. They cannot find a seat and they leave the building. My heart breaks at that moment because we are there to invite people and to allow people to come and listen to the gospel and sing with us. And we've come to the place where we cannot accommodate any more people. We've uh, prayed and uh, we've sought the Lord that he will find us a suitable location. And we have found the location. It is uh, about five times the space that we currently have. Uh, it can fit uh, about 170 people at a time. So we can grow up to possibly close to 340 people people with two services. We want to see new things that we can do even midweek so that we can uh, serve the community through our community center. We will uh, even utilize some of the space to be able to uh, generate some income and uh, we want to utilize that income in the future to invest in new church plants in Athens. What are some ways that First Free here in St. Louis can partner with Kipseli Church in the future? You've already decided to uh, bless us uh, with this uh, gift uh, of, uh, uh, you know, with the renovation. Uh, whenever teams are coming in, we are um, reaching out into the neighborhood with activities that otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. Also, we uh, like to learn. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of things in the U.S. churches have developed programs and they have developed strategies and values. We would uh, like to be able to benefit from those. We value a relationship. Uh, I would like to thank you all for uh, your uh, contribution, your prayers. Uh, I would like to thank you for your interest in what God is doing in Greece. And uh, I would like to have a chance uh, one day to get to know you uh, in person uh, when I visit. Or if you come to Greece, if you have a chance to come to Greece, I'd like to uh, meet uh, with you and um, serve together. Uh, may God bless you and thank you very much. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today. I had a great time with our missionaries in Greece, and uh, we got to send a missionary there last year as well, which is really cool. 
Angela, and I'm excited for hopefully you to get to go over there, some of you, and spend some time making a difference in that part of the world. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity that we have to help them with their new church facility. John and I were there. Uh, we had uh, Sunday services with them, and it was really interesting to see how they made do with the little space that they had. Uh, but now to see them be able to grow and expand and, and reach more people is really, really amazing. And um, the, it's, it's almost like the church is young and new again in Greece, and there is this incredible opportunity to make a difference there. So I hope that you will participate through the Thanksgiving offering, and I also hope that some of you will actually go with us and uh, be there for that missions trip. And then, of course, speaking of Thanksgiving offering, of course, we, if you have not already started giving to First Free Church, I encourage you to do that as well. You can go to efree.org give, set up your giving profile there, and contribute to the ministry here and everything that God is doing. There are so many things that the church supports, missionaries and ministries and lots of work that's done here in this area as well as the greater St. Louis area that only happens because you give. So uh, please do give to support your church and, and set all of that stuff up at efree.org slash give. Well, we're in the book of Acts right now. We're in Acts chapter 17, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles there to get ready for this. Um, I'm curious, how many of you were at the Newsboys concert this week that was here. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? We really wanted to keep that spinning drum thing that was up there that just kind of spins and rotates and all over that. I thought it'd be fun to stick Andrew into it, but you know, <laughs> they wouldn't leave it for us, unfortunately. It was a great concert, though. I had a wonderful time and uh, saw a lot of you there, which was super fun, and it was just a really, really nice uh, to have them here. And also, I heard from a lot of people, it just felt like, okay, this is neat to see this happen coming, you know, after the pandemic is over, to see concerts happening again, and just a bunch of Christians gathered together from a lot of different churches around here, and some people drove from multiple states away just to, to be at the, the concert, so very, very cool opportunity. One of their songs that I really love, one of my favorites of theirs, is the song, We Believe, which is all about the core of our faith. We believe in God the Father, and Jesus Christ the Son, the resurrection, and it walks through the the fundamentals of our faith, or what around here we would say is our dogma. It goes in our dogma bucket. The most essential things we believe together, even if we might disagree on some secondary issues. And that really was the core of the Apostle Paul's message as he traveled around that we read about in the book of Acts, <clears throat> going from city to city, sharing the essentials of the faith, and, uh, and making sure that people understood what really mattered and, uh, and what we believe. Essentially, the message was, here's what we believe and why, and, and we think you should believe this too. Will you join us in that? And it's all about faith in Jesus Christ. So today, as we look at a couple of instances where Paul does this, I want to treat this as an opportunity for you and me to examine our own faith, to evaluate your faith, and think about how would you describe your faith? Uh, some people um, have faith in Jesus Christ. Some people have faith in other gods. Some people have a faith that there is no God. That's still a faith. Some people have a faith that there's no ultimate judgment or afterlife, and, and you have to have faith that that's the case. And if that faith is wrong, then, then you're going to find out, and that might be a problem for you if, if you're wrong in that. And then whether if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know, what would you describe your faith as today? Is it, is it thriving? Is it stale? Um, do, you, do you find that it's something that moves you? Is everything else in your life oriented around your faith in Jesus? Is it the most important thing to you? So just get that picture in your mind for you. What is my faith like today? And I just want you to think about that and hold on to that because we're going to look at two different stories in Acts 17 and pull out of that four descriptors of our faith. And I wonder if these four descriptors describe your faith. 
or, or if they're real in your life today. Maybe, maybe they were in the past. Maybe they are still. Maybe they aren't as much anymore. But I think there are some things we can learn from this that we see from these two stories in uh, these two cities in Acts 17. One city is the city of Berea, and the other city is Athens. And you know we have seen throughout Acts already that Paul likes to go into a place and go to the synagogue and preach the gospel there. And there's a receptive audience there to some extent. Some people will believe. Some people will reject. And then he'll face opposition either from the Jewish leaders or the Greeks or both. And then he'll move on to another city and he'll do the same thing all over again. The cycle just continues. And we see this cycle play out in all these different cities. There's similarities. And today we're going to see some really interesting contrasts. Last week we looked at the city of Thessalonica. And we're going to see, actually Luke calls out a key difference between Berea and Thessalonica in our text today. And then he's going to go to the city of Athens, which is just completely different entirely. So he follows a similar pattern there, but then he deviates when he gets an opportunity to reach more people in a different way. So we're going to explore all of that today in Acts 17, starting with verse 10. But before we do that, let's all just pause for a minute and bow our heads. Can you, can you pray with me together and, and lift up in our hearts to God this prayer of God, would you teach us today from your word? I pray that there would be aspects of this that even though we're reading a description of accounts that happened, we're understanding that this is you at work in the middle of them and you want to work in our lives today too. And God, I pray that you would impress on us the principles you want us to learn, help us to understand those things that are distractions in our lives that keep us from having our faith fully focused on you. God, I pray that you would help us to be evangelistic like Paul and see our faith as not something to just hold on to, but something to share with others as well. Please teach us now from your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're in Acts chapter 17, look at verse 10 with me. Let's read about the city of Berea. We covered verse 10 last week because it's, they're actually still in Thessalonica at this point, but it's what sets up our time in Berea. So let's look at this together. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, as was their custom. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, so that's different. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were telling the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many prominent Greek women and men. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So if you remember last week, the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica stirred up this mob to riot against Paul and Silas. They went to the house of Jason, who was a believer. They did not find Paul and Silas there. So uh, eventually the believers there in Thessalonica decide, hey, we need to send you on to Berea. And I suspect that they knew people in Berea and they knew that these people would be receptive to this message and would want to hear it. That's my assumption because the Bible says they sent them on to Berea. So there was intention behind the direction that Paul and Silas went back from these new believers in Thessalonica. And when they arrived in Berea, Paul and Silas followed the pattern that we have come to expect. They go to the synagogue, they preach the gospel only in this case. Luke tells us that the believers, or the the Jewish believers rather, the the Jewish people in the synagogue there in Berea were 
were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they were willing to listen to what Paul had to say eagerly and then search the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Now, the word open-minded literally in the Greek means well-born. They were well-born. Or some versions translate it as noble. And the idea behind that is just they were respectful. They were polite. They were willing to engage in this. They did not immediately reject whatever Paul had to say. You know, that's a good lesson for us. When someone brings something to us that's new and and different and and maybe something that we didn't grow up with or or something that's not a a traditional belief or view for us, to at least have the, the decency to say, hey, I will listen. I will hear. I will try to understand where you're coming from on this. Whether or not I ultimately agree or disagree doesn't matter. I'm still going to treat you with respect and be polite. And that's what the people in Berea were to Paul. They, they were noble because, Luke says, they searched the scriptures day by day to see if Paul and Silas were telling the truth. Now, this is really neat because Paul comes into this synagogue. He starts sharing the prophecies just like he did in Thessalonica. And the Bereans say, hey, we have all these prophecies in the next room. In the back room, the records room, they're all back there. And so they bust out the scrolls and lay them out on the tables. And they're pouring over them, looking at these passages just to verify, is Paul accurately quoting these prophecies? Do these prophecies really speak to this Messiah in this way? And can we trace these lines all the way through Isaiah and Zechariah and all the, Jeremiah, all these others, and the Psalms all the way to Jesus Christ? Could he really be the Messiah that we have talked about and prayed for and longed for all these years? And what do you know, they discovered Paul and Silas were telling the truth. And so many of them believed because of this. Uh, Verse 12 tells us that many of the Jews and Greeks believed, and it actually says many prominent women and men. And the fact that women are mentioned first there before the men indicates that there were many more women who believed than men. I talked about this a little bit last week, how particularly in ancient times, it was easier for women to be open to faith in Jesus, to be open really to abandoning their other beliefs and believing in Jesus. And part of that was likely because for the men, they held virtually all the positions of power and all the uh, income generation for the most part. There are some exceptions to that, but almost all of it. And so for the men, they had a lot to lose business relationships and influence and prominence and political positions, council positions, those sorts of things. And if you're a man and you're presented with this idea of, hey, you need to give up all the worship you've been doing to different gods and the the paganism, the things that you believe for a long time and the things that your friends believe, the things that your coworkers and your business associates believe, your fellow politicians, your constituents believe, all of that. You need to give all of that up and follow after Jesus. They have a lot to lose. And for the men, most likely, if they feel like there's trouble in their life, issues in their life, a void that they need to fill, they're going to try to fill it with the different things they can get their hands on. More power, more money, sex, those sorts of things are going to be where the men turn. So there's a stubbornness and a self-sufficiency that's there for the men. And that's probably one of the reasons why women, we, we have now seen in, in multiple instances, were more willing to come to faith or be open to the faith. There's another reason some scholars suggest which is that in the Roman culture, the position of women was very low. They were actually often treated like property. And, and the husbands, it was almost as if they owned their wives, almost as if they were kind of a slave in some sense. And they had to get permission to do certain things. And so um, scholars have suggested that 
more Greek women were interested in the Jewish faith and would be at the synagogues because in the Jewish faith, there was this higher honor placed on women and wives and motherhood than there was in the Roman societies, generally speaking. There are exceptions to that, but generally speaking, that's what we see. And then Christianity comes along, and Christianity goes even further than that. And Jesus says, hey, I want the women to be learning and and being taught and being disciples and all of this stuff and have important roles in this ministry movement that we have here. And so you have the Jewish faith, which is better for women than the Roman culture. And then you have the Christian faith, which is even better than that. And so that's why some scholars say, hey, there were probably a lot more women early on who were open to the message than the men were, which is why they're mentioned first here. So there's this great excitement in Berea as all of these Jewish people and prominent women and men in the Greek society are searching the scriptures, realizing that there's validity to what Paul and Silas are saying and trusting in Jesus. And the faith lesson for us in this is that our faith is reasonable. The first descriptor I want to share with you, our faith is reasonable. It's not a blind faith. Paul didn't show up and just give some emotional plea with music at just the right time and fog and lasers going. And and they were just so moved in the moment by the, the, the experience and the atmosphere all around them that they said, I just need to give my life to this. That's not how it worked for them. They, Paul came and he reasoned with them and he shared the prophecies and he showed them the evidence. He traced the lines for them. And then the Bereans, to their credit, didn't just say yes or no. They went, we can go look this stuff up. And we can go verify if this is true. And this is why there are some churches today that are called some version of Berean. Because that collection of people, when they formed that church, said, hey, we want to be like that. We want to be like those people that search the scriptures to make sure what is said is true. And we should have that mindset here. There's nothing more uh, special or sacred about the things that I say versus the things that you can read in God's word. And God can speak and work in your life just like he works in mine. I appreciated the fact that the newsboys here a couple nights ago said people all the time ask us to pray for them as if we have some sort of special connection to God that you don't have. We have the same connection to God. And so they're they're like, we're very happy to pray for you, but don't think that we have some special relationship with God that you can't have just because we're the newsboys, you know? And the same thing is true for pastors. Um, We can say things that that may be missing certain things, or or we can say things that might be inaccurate sometimes because we're humans, we're flawed. And so everybody should, should feel like, hey, it's my responsibility to be reading the word of God, understanding it for myself, studying it for myself, so that when I hear something either at church or at a conference or on a podcast, or somewhere else that sounds off to me, I can go back to the Bible and say, is that right? Is that what that really says? That's what the Bereans did. And so we have a very reasonable faith. The claims of our faith can, to a large extent, be tested. Now, some of them certainly are supernatural and and they're not repeatable processes, but a lot of the aspects of our faith are recorded in biblical manuscripts, tens of thousands of biblical manuscripts. The archaeological evidence continues to support what is written in those biblical manuscripts. And then there are all these prophecies in those manuscripts that we can also look at, and many of them have been fulfilled in miraculous ways. If you just look at the prophecies about Jesus, there was a professor who led a team of mathematicians looking at the statistical probabilities of one person throughout human history fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And here's what he wrote in his book about this. He said, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies 
is one in 10 to the 17th power. Uh, what comes after trillion? Is it quadrillion? How does that work? Some, somebody knows here what that number is. I think, I think that that's, you got millions, billions, trillions, and whatever comes after trillions. Okay, that's a big number. That's my point. It's a big number, okay? Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a purely math guy. Now, for comparison, the odds of winning the next Mega Millions lottery are 1 in 302 million. So there's a big difference between the odds. You have a, you, in fact, all of you should go out and buy a lottery ticket after this because you have way better odds. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't do that unless your conviction is it's okay. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that. But your odds of winning the next Mega Millions lottery are way better than you becoming the Messiah. That's all I'm saying. So the statistical odds of someone fulfilling just eight of those, there are many other prophecies, but just eight of them, the eight most um, obvious ones are astronomical, one in 10 to the 17th power. It's amazing. Now, some people still look at all the evidence and they look at the archaeology and they look at the manuscripts and they look at the fulfilled prophecy and they say, hey, I don't, I don't believe that. Or I interpret that evidence differently. And I understand that. But what they cannot do if they have fairly looked at the, all that evidence is to say for those that do believe it, that they have an unreasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. It is an evidence-based, reasonable faith that we have. Now, I've given many examples of the archaeology and the manuscript evidence and how this supports our faith over the years here in my messages and in the Five Questions podcast, but I found a new one this week that I wanted to share with you. There was a debate several decades ago about a really clear, what seemed like a very clear prophecy about the way that Jesus Christ would die from a psalm that David wrote. And there was debate over whether or not that actually meant what we thought it meant in our versions or if our translations were wrong. The verse in question is Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, which says in our Bibles, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs an evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, pierced my hands and my feet is really interesting because at the time David wrote this, crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. That wasn't a method of death. And so it was very unusual to see pierced hands and feet at this time. It doesn't really fit with the, the cultures and the way that they did things at the time. Um, so it was kind of an incredible thing for David to write that, and we take that to be a prophecy about Jesus. But the problem is the best Hebrew manuscripts that have been available for hundreds of years do not say pierced hands and feet. The best Hebrew manuscripts say, you can put this up on the screen, like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. And, and so this presents a problem for us. Now, the Greek manuscripts that our versions are based on are from a couple thousand years ago. The Hebrew manuscripts that have lion are from the Middle Ages, so they're a thousand years later. But the Greek manuscripts are fewer. The Hebrew manuscripts, there are many more of them. And so there was this debate about, are the older Greek ones correct, translated from the original Hebrew, or are the more recent Hebrew ones correct? Did they more faithfully keep this? And it was a, a mystery and a debate over what happened until around the 1950s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and eventually analyzed, and they found two copies that have manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts we know of, of Psalm 22. And guess what they say? In the Hebrew, pierced, unmistakably pierced. And so we now know there's no debate anymore beyond a shadow of a doubt that the oldest possible reference we have says pierced his hands and feet instead 
of a lion at his hands and feet. And so probably what happened is at some point, a Hebrew scribe sometime around or before the Middle Ages looked at that passage in Psalms as he was making his copy of it. And he either did one of two things, most likely. He either looked at it and said, this can't be right. This is anachronistic. They didn't have this kind of form of execution back then. They wouldn't have a piercing of hands and feet. I don't know what this means. The word for pierced and the word for lion in the Hebrew are separated by just one little mark. And so maybe he just thought that was a mistake. Somebody spilled their coffee on it, whatever. And we're going to change it back to lion like it should be. It's one possibility. Or it's also possible that he looked at this and said, whoa, that is way too close to what happened to Jesus. We're just going to change this little thing right here. And we're going to turn it into to lion. Still kind of works. The translation still works okay. Because we don't want any connection to be made to this prophecy and Jesus. Because it's just too similar. I don't know what it is. But somewhere along the line that got changed. And now we have direct evidence that it really is pierced his hands and feet. Which I think is really cool. I never, never knew that before. But back in Berea now. That was just a sidebar. Even with all these people coming to Christ and having faith in Jesus, there's some trouble brewing because the Jewish leaders back in Thessalonica get wind of what is happening in Berea and they decide to make the trek two or three days over to Berea to oppose Paul and Silas again. And I have to imagine that this was a bit surreal for Paul, the man who at one time hunted down Christians to persecute them, who is now himself being hunted down and persecuted. And you think about that, it's, it's surreal, it's, it's ironic in a way, but it also was a really good thing. Because you know what that did for all the other Christians with Paul? To see him willing to risk his life as he's being persecuted and hunted down and put in jail and prison and having all these experiences and, and people that want to beat him up, people that want to kill him. It shows the genuineness of his faith. And it shows the sincerity, the authenticity is there. This is not a hoax. This is not a con. This is not a temporary thing for him. His life has been radically transformed. He is now willing to die for the thing that he was willing to kill people for in the past. And that's an amazing story of the transforming power of Jesus. And it's an amazing outcome to the troubles and the challenges and the trials that he faced. And it makes me think of our troubles that we face today and what the Bible says about those. Because a lot of times in the moment, we don't realize the good that is happening when we face difficult times, all sorts of difficult circumstances. I know there are so many difficult things going on in our lives today. I've I've talked to multiple people today already out in the lobby and backstage and different places about really tough stuff that's happening in our lives, in our marriages, with our kids, in our schools, at work, all sorts of things. And the Bible gives us three main ways that it shows that troubles actually can be a really good thing thing. The first thing is James tells us that having troubles, experiencing troubles develops faith endurance. So if you want your faith to be a faith that endures, if you want a strong faith, troubles are a part of that. That's what grows it. That's what exercises it. That's the the thing that's going to help your faith grow. Paul talks about how troubles lead to glorifying God. As our weakness is shown, and our faith in God grows, then God gets the glory and not us because we were weak and we've experienced this difficulty and people ask us about it and we say, man, if it weren't for my faith in God, I don't know how I'd be getting through this. And here's how he's helping me through this. And so God is glorified, number two, when we face troubles and we respond in the appropriate way. John talked about that a couple weeks ago. He said, sometimes what people need to see is how you respond to difficulty in your life. 
And that's the message they need to see about faith. But the third way that troubles can be so good for us is that it can lead to really good things that we might not have even considered in the moment. Paul's troubles and Paul's persecutions led to an increase in his ministry. It led to spreading the gospel in more and more places as they forced him out of this city and forced him out of that city. And so more people heard the gospel. And it led to this confidence in the other believers that they could trust in him and trust in his leadership and trust in the authenticity of his conversion and his sincerity of the drive for the gospel because he was willing to do it up up until death. And so sometimes troubles in our lives actually lead to wonderful things. And we may not know about it for months or years if we ever learn at all. I mentioned on the Five Questions podcast last week about the conflict in Israel, that the fact that the Jewish people experienced persecution for many centuries actually helped to keep them as a cohesive and distinct group that could eventually be brought back into a nation around 1950, just as Ezekiel prophesied a long time ago. There was this dispersion that happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and and, uh, the Jews were just scattered all over the world. And then it was about 2,000 years before they came back together as a nation again. And during that time, people groups don't stay distinct all over the world. They don't stay separated. They integrate. They intermarry. They, they, get, they get faded away into the culture that they're a part of until the point where the only way you can kind of trace back their identity is through their DNA and say, oh, you have some of this and some of that. And certainly a little bit of that happened, but the distinctness of the Jewish people over a couple thousand years is, is astonishing. And it was in part thanks to the persecution and the troubles that they experienced that kept them from fully integrating, kept them unique and isolated and different to the point where they could eventually be reunited as a people again. So Paul and Silas are facing these troubles and this persecution that is against them. And these leaders have come from Thessalonica to oppose them. And it makes me think, why? Why would these leaders from Thessalonica say, yeah, we're going to pack up our stuff and travel two to three days over to Berea, over to the west there, because we want to just keep going against these guys. Why would they be willing to do that? Why wasn't it enough for them to just kick them out of Thessalonica? We scared him away. Not in my backyard. Not my problem anymore. Why would they keep pursuing them to Berea? I think the answer to that is that our faith is dangerous. This is our second descriptor. Our faith pretty cool, right? It's dangerous. It's a dangerous faith. Faith in Jesus means valuing godly things instead of worldly things, which is a threat to the economics of this world. Faith in Jesus means living by godly principles. That's a threat to the hedonism of this world. Faith in Jesus means exclusively worshiping the God of the Bible. That's a threat to the religions of this world. Faith in Jesus means respecting and helping all people. That's a threat to the ideology of this world. I don't know if you've noticed, but every attempt this world makes at uh, equality and virtue always seems to lead to discrimination and violence. It never works out as the utopia that we think it's going to be. And yet the, the Christian faith calls us to a respect and a help for all people, even our enemies, that is very unique and contrary to the way the world works. Faith in Jesus means pushing back against the spiritual forces of darkness that want to control God's creation and take it away from his control. Jesus warned that we would face opposition. He said they persecuted him and they would persecute us too. 
And you and I are living in this very unique time where we have this incredible freedom in this country to worship God and have this faith in Jesus that's a reasonable faith and we're relatively free and and we enjoy this really unique period of history. But for the last couple thousand years, Christians have largely been persecuted either for being Christians or for being the wrong kind of Christian in many cases. And so we're in this unique time of history right now where we have this sort of gap period of very low persecution, at least for us. That's not true for all our brothers and sisters around the world, certainly. And yes, there seems to be increasing persecution in different ways, largely low-level persecution of believers in this country. But man, we need to thank God for what we have right now. We need to be ready if that changes. And we need to make the most of the freedom that we have to share with other people because it may not always be so free. But remember that whatever troubles, whatever opposition we face, it's to be expected because our faith is dangerous. It's a threat to the world and it's a threat to the enemy. So that's Berea, what we learned from Berea. And now I'm gonna quickly go through what we learned from Athens. Because Paul, we read in verse 16, went to Athens. He's waiting for the others in Athens, but he's deeply troubled by the idols that he sees everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue, that's what he normally did, to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. He spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. That public square is called the Agora. I'll talk more about that in a minute. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. And they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods, but they were interested. So they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Now, I love this parenthetical note that Luke includes next. He says, it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So this was the cool, hip thing for them to do. They like to talk philosophy and religion and those sorts of things. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. I love how he, he takes their own culture and uses that to, as a springboard to his message. He is the God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need from one man. He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone, which he could probably point to and, and just show them all of those. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Well, at this point, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. 
but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So really quickly, I want to talk about Athens here. And I actually want to show you a bunch of pictures from Athens because uh, John and I got to go there and see this place. It's an amazing place. There's a lot of great work being done there. You can go ahead and put the picture of John and I up on the screen. We met some wonderful missionary couples while we were there doing amazing work. And I hope that some of you will get to go and work with them as well. But let me show you the Acropolis. The Acropolis is the hilltop kind of garden temple complex where there were statues and shrines and altars all over the place. Uh, the, uh, there were these podiums that you would put idols on and set them up to worship while you were there. Uh, there were different temples and altars all over the place. This is an altar, I believe, to a god of healing. The culmination of this experience is a trip up these steps to the temples at the top. And there are these big, impressive temples up there, the biggest one being the Parthenon to Zeus and Athena and other gods. This is some work being done on the Parthenon to, uh, to refinish it. And this is what the front of the Parthenon looks like. Inside would have actually been a walled structure. So you'd have this colonnade around the outside with the columns and then the, the walls inside. And then a, a big statue of Athena would be inside the Parthenon. But there were temples and altars and statues all over the place. Paul walked through this area, was burdened by what he saw, the false gods that could do nothing to help these people. So he went to the synagogue and then he went to the Agora. And this is a picture of the Agora. This was the public marketplace. Conversations would happen here. Um, all sorts of probably presentations. It was used for a lot of different things. It was the public square of the area. And Paul found that the Greeks were very open to conversations with him here. And he had these conversations with them, and they were interested and wanted to hear more, and they were open to um, more dialogue about these new ideas that he was bringing to them. And they heard lots of new stuff all the time, because, you know, Luke said, hey, this is what they like to do. But with this one, this was especially interesting to them, so much so that they're like, hey, we don't know what's going on, we're a little confused, but we need to take you to the leaders of this place, and we need to get you to the city council so that they can make heads or tails of what you're talking about. And that gets us to our third descriptor for our faith, which is that our faith is intriguing. Our faith is intriguing. In the Agora, they were confused by what he was saying, but they did want to know more because there's something about this. There's something about this. There's some mystery there. There's this um, supernatural aspect of it. It makes sense to me. It deals with a, a void and a, an issue that I have in my life. It gives me hope and promise for the future. And so there's this intrigue to our faith. And because of that, Paul ends up on the Areopagus, which is what we know as Mars Hill. Here's a picture of what Mars Hill looks like. And then here's a picture of what the platform looks like on Mars Hill. You'd have to imagine a building there because it's, it's not there anymore. There are some original steps you can walk on where Paul would have walked up to this place. But it is here where he met with the city council. And it's amazing to think that the view that we just saw there is a similar view to what Paul saw only with idols, shrines, altars all over, statues painted with all sorts of colors to look realistic. I mean, it must have been an incredibly impressive sight. Part of this is because in the Athenian culture, you weren't supposed to show off your wealth. So if you were wealthy, you didn't dress any different than anybody else. That was actually taboo. And the Romans mocked them for this because they said, we can't tell the slaves from the slave owners because they all dress alike. And so there was only one way that you could show off your wealth in the Athenian culture. Anybody guess what it was? Religion. 
You could donate to the religion at the Acropolis. You could donate idols and shrines and altars, statues, all these things. And that's why the place was just dotted with them. Because you'd walk through and it would be this statue to Zeus donated by the such and such family. And everybody would go, wow, that's a nice statue. You know, and covered in gold and everything. Oh, wow, they're doing pretty well. It was the only acceptable way to show off your wealth. Which is why when Paul walked through, he saw all these idols and shrines and altars everywhere. And then he gets to this place in the Areopagus. And he gives this amazing message to them. And actually, if you go there today, this plaque is on the wall with the text of Acts 17. And the the message, the gospel message that Paul preached is actually there in Greece today. In Greek, for them to read. Saying, men of Athens, I notice that you are religious in every way. Talks about the shrines, the altars, the unknown God. I love how he relates it to them. And then he says, he's the one who made the world and everything in it. He doesn't need these temples. He doesn't need you to serve him. He's looking back. There are hundreds of temple staff all over the place, bringing in food and putting them down as offerings and putting clothes on the, the statues, the idols of the gods and taking them off and changing them every day and doing all these different functions that are supposed to serve the gods so that the gods will be pleased and appeased and will want to come and live with them and live in their city and bless them in different ways. And you have to do all these things to make the gods happy with you so that you can have a, a better life. And, and Paul's message to them is that's not how the real God works at all. To the Greeks, the gods were kind of like people with superpowers. It was, it was the Marvel Cinematic Universe for them was the Acropolis. You know, and here are all the statues of these superpowered beings, but very fallible and very fickle. And they want you to serve them. And they want you to build statues for them. And they want you to bring food to them and, and put clothes on their statues. And, and if you don't do that, then they're not going to like you anymore. And Paul says, our God's not like that at all. Our faith isn't like that at all. And so my fourth descriptor for our faith is that our faith is supernatural. Our faith is supernatural. And I guess what I mean by that is our God is not a God that has natural needs like the Greeks believed. Our God is is not a God that's fickle. Our God is not a God that needs us to do a bunch of stuff to serve him and appease him in order to earn his favor. Our God supernaturally came down into this world as God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to live as one of us. And he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He did the opposite of what the Greek people were expecting. Instead of coming here and saying, I want you to serve me and then I might bless you and give you favor. He said, well, you're still a sinner and opposed to me. I'm going to come. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to die for you so that you can be a part of my family so that even though you have done wrong and thought wrong and have sin in your life, that can be wiped away. I will take that on myself, pay the penalty for it so that you can be holy and pure before God. Not because of anything you did, but because of what I'm going to do to serve you. That's what Jesus did for us. It's a supernatural faith. It's not something that we can earn or work for. Our faith is reasonable. Our faith is dangerous, our faith is intriguing, and our faith is supernatural. And what I want to do as we close our time today is a little bit of a thought experiment for you. Thinking about the Acropolis, and I showed you those pictures there to try to help you get a visual of this. It's this hilltop place of worship. Altars and shrines everywhere. We don't really have quite that in our world today, but we do have altars 
and we do have shrines, and we do have idols. And I wonder if you were to think about your life and what you worship, what would in your hilltop place of worship count as a shrine, as an altar, as something that you worship in your life? What's the, what's the biggest thing of prominence there? What's the altar that takes precedence over everything else? You know, as I think about our lives in this way, I think, well, there are probably lots of benches in our gardens. That's okay. Places that we spend time and that we, we uh, spend our time and resources on. But where do they point? Where are they facing? Have they become a shrine, an altar in itself that we kind of worship this thing and this is a priority for us? Or is it a thing that's good for us to do, but it's always pointed toward that one thing, that one altar that's in our hilltop garden place of worship, and that is to focus on God and, and Jesus Christ and our faith in him. So I just want you to take a moment and examine your faith and examine the focus of your worship and think about the altars that exist in your life. And we're going to sing a song to close us out that's all about the altar and coming to the altar and worshiping Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness, he offers redemption, and then he wants to be the focal point for the rest of our life. Not so that we can earn his favor, but because he's already given us his favor. Because he's already given us so much grace. And so are there altars in your life that have taken priority and precedence over him? I want you to just sit during the first verse and think and reflect on your life. And then when you're ready, stand up, sing out loudly, join in as we talk about coming to the altar of Jesus Christ and let him be the focal point of our lives.